Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a podcast on the Constitution, law, and policy, featuring my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you? I'm very fine, thank you, and I've missed your company in the last couple of weeks. Well, thanks, Richard. And for those who don't know, this is Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm in a hurry. I want to jump right into the conversation, Richard. It's a very, very busy week at the Supreme Court. We're recording this podcast in late January. It's already been a busy year. We'll talk soon about the OSHA and HHS vaccine cases. We just saw news of of cert grants in the affirmative action cases, the EPA wetlands case, and more. It's a fascinating year at the Supreme Court. There's so much to discuss. But Richard, why don't we start with recent events? The Supreme Court's decision in the pair of cases uh, involving uh, OSHA, HHS, and their respective vaccine mandates. What did you make of the decisions? Well, let me put it to you this way. If they had come out the opposite way, that is, if the government had won on the general mandate and had lost with respect to the Medicare Medicaid mandate, I would have said the world is a completely crazy case. Um, There is no question that the ability to strike down things is much greater with respect to the general mandate. Uh, The statutory authorization is far weaker. Uh, The idea that somehow or other you can declare situations grave without giving some kind of particularistic explanation is highly dubious. Uh, As usual, the case tended to turn on what's the appropriate standard of review. In the Sixth Circuit, they kind of gave a general form of Chevron deference, which meant anything goes. But in the Fifth Circuit, which had gotten this case earlier, what they did is they say, no, when you start looking at these cases in which you want to have these emergencies intervention, it's very heavily guarded. Uh, The government doesn't seek it very often. And most of the time when it does seek it, it gets slapped down, which is kind of a sign that they're using some form of strict scrutiny. So as usual, that's the fatal issue. If you get the right level of scrutiny, you get the right result for what you want. And what they did is they were able to show there was no particularly good fit with what's going on in this case. Uh, There are immense variety in the kinds of workshops, in the kind of workplaces that you start to have. The 100 place line seems to be a little bit arbitrary under these circumstances. The statutory authorization was very, very shaky. What was interesting about the case is that they did not spend any time actually talking about any of the medical issues associated with this. And I find that very very odd because it turns out the entire case for the vaccines is really finding itself in immense difficulty. Omicron turns out not to be as severe as one thought, so why is there an emergency? Uh, The breakthrough cases, that is those cases in uh, which it turns out that vaccinated people either get the virus of one form or another, or they transmit it to somebody else, are getting very high. They're even higher in places like Israel and Malta. Uh, The severity between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated people is getting closer, I think, although it's not quite there. But the most important feature is people with natural immunities have far greater protection. I think now everybody agrees, and yet they're going to be subject to the same kind of mandate as everybody else. So I think there's a lot of stuff about that that could have been said, and I'm frankly relieved that it went there. The Medicare-Medicaid situation is essentially, is this an unconstitutional condition with respect to a government grant? And the attitude that the majority took was that we look at this sort of capaciously, and what we see is that they have general kind of health power over this thing and conditions which are designed to make sure that healthcare personnel don't get themselves sick or injured and transmit it to other people. Uh, The majority, now 5-4, essentially said that's there. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a strong dissent saying you're cobbling together too many independent programs. You haven't been able to show for each of them that this is what's needed. And so again, it's the same story. Uh, The majority thinking that this was a deferential case 
uh, started at 5-4 to let it stand. Uh, the minority, still thinking that some degree of scrutiny was fully warranted, wanted to push it in the opposite direction. Uh, the tragedy, I think, in the last case is we now have a serious shortage of doctors to deal with many of these things, and it's not at all clear exactly how we want to deal with people. So I would have as a standard rule, under no circumstances can you require a vaccine or keep somebody off the job if they can establish that they had natural immunity. To me, that's the easy line on which to draw. The Biden administration, the CDC are very skeptical about that claim, but having reviewed some of this literature, uh, it seems to me that the evidence on natural immunity is overwhelmingly powerful and that that should be one of the central pieces of our policy. Indeed, I think it's irrational for anybody to require a vaccine of that sort. When I say I think it's irrational, every major institution seems to think that this is irrelevant. So as you know, Adam, first we get the vaccine to solve all our problems. Then we wear masks. Then we keep social distancing, right? And then we get booster shots on this. So uh, we're on a treadmill. Uh, all the promised relief hasn't taken place. And these cases, I think, reflect the kind of angst that everybody has over this issue. And your views? Well, I mean, on this on the substantive policy, I'm very, very open to whether to states, you know, well, first of all, you'll say open to the vaccine. I'm fully vaccinated and boosted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm even open to, 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 to discussions about state mandates on vaccines and a, and a sort of a fast developing Omicron situation. Obviously there's interesting new data on both the vaccines and masking and, you know, it, it may well justify a policy change uh, down the road. I, I'm totally comfortable with the government taking sort of a, a precautious approach on these things so far. But with the case of the OSHA mandate in particular, I was skeptical of the mandate to st- from the start. And I think the court reached the right decision. I mean, unsurprisingly for somebody, given that I, I run a place called the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason, uh, you know, very, very interested in how the court was actually going to go about the statutory analysis on that, how they're going to construe the agency's power. and very pleased that the majority seemed to undertake what Gorsuch referred to as the major questions doctrine analysis, this basic canon of construction that says when we interpret these vague, pretty open-ended statutes like the the OSHA Act, um, we're not going, we are going to presume that Congress is reserves for itself, not agencies, the power to decide the most consequential economic or policy issues of our time. And we, the court, are not going to assume that a vague delegation of, 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 of ambiguous power to an agency contains uh, a grant of power to do the most consequential things, absent a pretty clear statement from Congress. Um, I actually recorded a podcast over here at the Grace Center just a few days ago with Kristen Hickman of Minnesota and Jillian Metzger of Columbia unpacking the doctrine. But as I noted along the way, it was interesting that the court itself didn't use the term major questions doctrine. They they walked through that kind of analysis, but never used those magic words, even though Roberts and, and Kavanaugh have, have discussed that doctrine in other cases like King v. Burwell or Kavanaugh's opinions in the D.C. Circuit. It was Gorsuch in his separate opinion who actually pointed out that two pages of the majority opinion read like a major questions doctrine analysis. So it's interesting the court didn't want to call it that by name. I'm glad Gorsuch did. And now the interesting question is how far will that doctrine carry in future cases? I think there's a lot of excitement around the around the court's decision or Gorsuch's the, the way Gorsuch framed the court's decision. 
But of course, I think we ought to keep in mind that the OSHA case, the OSHA mandate, were, were extraordinary, exceptional, and won't necessarily be the new normal. I think the challenge now is to try to really grapple with how normal this doctrine has become and what it ought to mean in more normal cases. But separate from all that, at the very end of your comment, Richard, you talked about other institutions, private institutions that are imposing vaccine mandates, and I'm, I'm quite fine with those myself. One thing that has bothered me, though, and it goes back to the, ver- the, the early months of the Biden administration, when the administration, President Biden himself, was pouring cold water on the idea of a vaccine mandate. Biden would often, in the, the, next, the very next breath, say that it would be good for private institutions to mandate vaccines. And I I have mixed feelings about this, sort of on a a retail level, company to company. I'm totally fine with it. In fact, I think it's probably a good thing. But what I don't like is the president sitting atop the administrative state, just sort of musing out loud how much he would like private sector to impose what is in effect government policy. Um, I'm very, very wary of that, and especially in a country where most companies or most major companies are so heavily regulated, especially in such nebulous ways by the SEC and others. Um, and other companies say that maybe the CFPB um, or the Federal Trade Commission now very, very worried that we're seeing the creation of a dynamic in which uh, the president or agencies can just start musing out loud about policies they'd like to see the private sector impose, and then the private sector racing to uh, to impose them. The Biden administration, you know, President Biden put out an executive order proclaiming how important it is for companies to compete. Well, evidently not on this one issue, though. Um, and so I'll, I'll be curious to say the least, maybe wary or worried about this almost outsourcing of administration to the private sector. Uh, and I think it's something that we ought to watch very closely. Well, I agree with that, but I would go even one step further. You know, I did mention some of the stuff about the medical issues, particularly with respect to natural immunities. The other issue that I think one has to seriously confront is the question about side effects. And the evidence is growing that these vaccines can in fact very powerful side effects in some cases. And so when you start to impose these mandates on people as an employer and you don't give them any particular choice, uh, the question is, do you have complete freedom of action to do this or you're going to be subject to a challenge if somebody should have an adverse event on the grounds that they weren't reasonable? And there are two ways to look at this and the distinction is not made. Uh, if you want to start up a new business and bring people in and they have no pre-commitments and you say, this is a mandate kind of shop, you have to take all the risk associated with these particular operations, um, well, I mean, then take it or leave it. But these are imposed upon people who are already there. Somebody says, well, there's students that can go elsewhere. They've paid a year's tuition. They can't go anywhere else at this particular point in time. So as to argue that this is a case in which you take it or leave it, you can't do it because it's formation. So the correct contract analysis is one that is associated um, with modifications of existing contracts, which cannot be unilaterally done unless they can be shown to be reasonable. And that is going to be contested with respect to this. The other point I think that one should mention is there's something known as the PREP Act. And I was actually surprised when I went back and read it. And it says that nobody is going to be responsible for any kind of liability with respect to these vaccines, even if they're imposed by way of mandate. And, you know, generally speaking, the product liability law has been skeptical. I'm not, but the product liability law has been skeptical with respect to agreements uh, that waive liability, even when it's a take it or leave it situation. That is, you can, in fact, not use the product. I've never seen 
anyone say that we're going to have a complete waiver of liability. And at the same time, we're going to coerce you to take these things uh, when you then have to worry about these risks. Now, one of the things I took the vaccine, I, I don't think I would have done it if I had not been required. I did have a out of COVID. So I think I've got some natural immunities. I believe that particular literature. I'm happy to say in my case, it was relatively mild. I think what generally happens with Omicron is it can be difficult if you've got some comorbidities, but if you're in pretty good health, even if you're relatively old, it isn't. The interesting thing about the vaccines is it turns out they seem to be more dangerous, say, in the male side of these things, for people between 20 and 40 than the people who are over 70. Uh, and what you're doing in universities and places, uh, the workforce consists of huge numbers of people who seem to be in the most vulnerable place. So what you do is you then get a statute which says, anybody who creates these things, there's no liability at all. Uh, if you go back to the swine flu cases back in 1976 and so forth, uh, the issue about liability for warnings actually came up. And the drug company said, well, we can't provide an adequate warning. This is such a completely fluid technology of one form or another uh, that somebody else is going to have to do it. So they made the vaccines on the assumption that the government would pick up the liability. And the warnings were terrible. And there was over $4 billion of payments that were made back in the early 80s uh, dealing with this. At this particular point, except in quote, cases of willful misconduct, uh, a very difficult term, nobody's going to be responsible for everything. So I am extremely unhappy about a situation where contract modifications impose risk on people, which I think in many cases are unnecessary, and there's no recourse, at least under the current statutory scheme, uh, for any compensation for people who start to get hurt. I do believe that this thing is going to be subject in one way or another to litigation, and if it is, I mean, I just don't know whether these things will or will not hold up. It's Adam, it's exactly what you said. It's the notion of huge deference to the administrative body. Here, you don't have a delegation issue because it's all done through the statute and so forth. Uh, but you do have a coercion issue and you do have a system of, you know, as you said, it's a unified front. This is not individual employees doing it. So you got a monopoly element with the coercion element. Um, I find this a very unsettling type situation. And as I said earlier, I think the foremost thing we'd want to do immediately is to get rid of the vaccines altogether for anybody who has the natural immunities. And they probably are now many, many people who got it from the Omicron virus, because you can get the natural immunities, it appears, at least in some cases where there's asymptomatic transmission. And there are probably a lot of cases like that which have taken place. Obviously, this has been litigated for years and years, going back to the 80s, and there were constitutional debates long before that. The breadth of the federal government's constitutional power over um, navigable waters within states uh, translated through the Clean Water Act into the, the, the Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA's power over navigable waters, uh, waters of the United States. This is now going to come back to the Supreme Court yet again for another decision. And here, once again, are the Sacketts who helped uh, open the courthouse doors a few years earlier on a procedural case uh, involving who has uh, who has standing to, to challenge uh, an EPA jurisdictional determination. So it'll be a big, big case. At the same time, later this spring, we're going to hear the Supreme Court uh, oral arguments in the climate case, West Virginia versus EPA, uh, a challenge to the EPA's claim of authority under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act uh, to regulate for climate um, climate policy. So there's so much going on. There's a Chevron case, the Becerra case, and more. Richard, 
What's your sense of where the Roberts Court is on these broad administrative state issues? Because the way I look at it, there's a number of cross currents among the justices, even among uh, the conservative justices on the court, over what they see as the problems and what they see as the solutions. I could offer some thoughts on that, but why don't you go first? Okay, sure. Look, I mean, I think that this is going to be a rerun of the major questions doctrine in another one of these forms. Is uh, you think you said it out earlier? Uh, the way in which you want to figure out how Chevron is going to be cut back or perhaps ultimately eliminated, uh, the expansion of the major questions doctrine is going to be one very important piece. And if you look at these two cases, it's clear that there's a lot of administrative shenanigans. So uh, originally, when you started to talk about the definition of the navigable waters of the United States, the definition that they use is that you had to do something so as to make sure that you could take a boat uh, from one end to another. It could be a very small boat. Indeed, there are cases from the 1860s which say that a river becomes navigable if it's something that you could use to take logs from the mountains and run them down to the body, even if boat can't go. And the theory about this is a, a river, essentially, if it's a mode of transportation, we don't want to give people who have land right next to it veto power so as to chop it up so that the thing becomes useless. So I understand and I agree with all these cases. But the definition that they're using now is anything that does anything to pour into a navigable water, including dry land, as in the second case, or lands that are nearby, can be treated as a navigable water. This was not done in any sensible way. There was a collusive agreement back in the 1970s uh, between the government and one of the litigants, which agreed to that broader definition. And then there was another case of oozing deference, a case called Riverview Bayview Homes, in which what happened is the Supreme Court, Justice White, who's a great believer in administrative deference, I think it was him, said, oh, if you want to give this broader definition, who are we to try to challenge it? Well, that's exactly the kind of overreach uh, that I think the conservative majority is really very worried about. And it's an overreach with a real danger, because if you recall that Sackett case from 2010, this guy was on dry land. There were several people who had built closer to the water, and the government was prepared to say, if you so much as put a spade in that ground, we're going to find you $36,000 a day for a violation of this statute because you haven't gotten the permits. Well, this is the sequel to that, you know, 11 years later. And regardless of what the facts turn out to be and how it's presented, I do think that there is going to be a fairly strong cutback of the definitions of navigable waters. There was a 2006 case called Rapanos in which the four members decided it was narrow. There was a fifth member, four members decided it was very broad. And then there was good old Justice Kennedy in the middle saying, it all depends on facts and circumstances, the kind of test that basically makes you gnash your teeth. And facts and circumstances tended to always side with the minority force. So it give you a big, big uh, government power. I think that is going to be changed. Uh, the other case involves the best systems of emissions control. And it's a very simple line. The traditional Trump definition, which I think is correct, is uh, it tells you how you can put your, your, your equipment together, what kind of filters you put on this thing and whether or not you require a bigger vacuum tube over here and the like. And what's happened is the broader definition of this says, oh, I, systems of emissions control is how we integrate the machinery that you use with all sorts of systems of control um, outside the equipment that you're talking about, including quotas on the amount of pollution that could come out from a given state and so forth. And that's also a huge extension from the equipment to the entire system. And I think, in effect, what happens is you're going to see exactly the same thing as you saw before. It's going to be struck down on the grounds that you stated that an effort to uh, 
allow you to fix machinery being turned into an effort to tell you exactly how much solar energy you have to put, what kinds of plants you have to put here, there, and the other place. That's not a system of emissions control. That requires congressional authorization. So wholly without regard to the individual merits, my guess is that both of those particular mainstays of the liberal program are going to be under assault. And in this case, I think it's good riddance. I've regarded those two decisions as some of the worst things that have come down. And this is not my view of whether you do or do not want environmental controls. I'm very much in favor of them, particularly for cases where private actions don't work. But almost invariably, I think that the danger of overbreath by stopping everything, uh, including a lot of valid activities, is too dangerous. And you have to basically require the agency to form, you know, to focus on genuine harms rather than the entire structure of the economy in the United States. So that is what I would say. Had these cases for a long time coming to the court, at least the issues were, and not just because of the previous iterations of, of the court's decisions, but, but also if, if Hillary Clinton had won the 2016 election, these would have been basically the two most consequential cases of her first year in office. There was the uh, the original uh, climate litigation uh, making its way up uh, through the lower courts to the Supreme Court, and there was the there was a wetlands case, a, a Waters of the United States rule case that was making its way up through, I think, the Sixth Circuit, maybe. I can't remember. Um, but surely the Obama administration's policies, which would have been continued by Hillary Clinton, uh, would have given rise to Supreme Court litigation. We might have gotten some more clarity now, uh, better late than never, I suppose. What's interesting about the wetlands case, you, you said you expect a return to the major questions doctrine. As it happens, those earlier, some of those earlier cases that you referred to, the Rapanos case and before it, um, solid uh, waste of northern Cook County, um, the Rock Quarry case. They, in both of those cases, the court um, referred to more or less what sounds now like the major questions doctrine. There's a line saying Rapanos, where Justice Scalia wrote the plurality opinion, and he said, uh, the, the Army Corps' interpretation stretches the outer limits of Congress's commerce power and raises difficult questions about the ultimate scope of that power. Um, he goes on to say, you know, we'd expect a clear statement if Congress were to test the boundaries of its own power. It's not exactly the major questions doctrine, but it's, it's a very close cousin. And so I expect the court will return to that once again. Um, it'll be a good thing if they do. I'd say we've seen enough change in the courts, change in personnel, but even for, say, the, the, the arrival of the last generation of, of, of judges, the so-called Trump judges, you saw justices, especially Justice Scalia, saying we need to put more meat on the bones of statutory analysis, right? Scalia, in, in the last big climate case, Utility Air Regulatory Group, his opinion for the court put real teeth in statutory interpretation, even in step two of Chevron analysis, which is usually so deferential. Scalia, in that case, said we need to be very skeptical of the court, of the, sorry, the, the agency, the EPA, suddenly discovering practically open-ended powers in these old statutes. Uh, and so the more and more we see of that, I think it would be a good thing. Of course, the agencies surely in turn will, they won't be docile in, in their reactions. In their, their own next generation of, of regulations, we'll see long legal analyses, legal arguments, trying to justify why uh, they're interpreting the statute in such a broad way. In fact, frankly, that's the reason why I think the, the Biden agencies have been on the rulemaking docket, so quiet so far. We haven't seen a lot of major rulemakings come out, I think because they are papering up those rules 
preparing for a lot of war is often fought in the context of, of the major questions doctrine. But it's good that these cases are coming up now, I mean, good in and of themselves, but also just good for the next few years of agency work and, and litigation uh, in the lower courts. It's good for the courts and the agencies and all of us to have a better sense of how the Supreme Court is going to go about interpreting the law on these extremely consequential cases. Let me mention something about Justice Scalia, um, who has been on again, off again about Chevron over his entire career. Um, I tend to approach this as a private lawyer, and I've always been skeptical of the administrative state, but he was part and parcel of it when he was in the Office of Legal Counsel and made his academic reputation as an administrative lawyer. Uh, so th- there's a famous case called Our, which involves the scope of discretion to classify given work as a subject to the maximum hours and um, minimum wage requirements. And the question concerned who it was in police forces was subject to them. And the decision was written saying that you could take people who are in charge of units, including sergeants and even intermediate commanders, and treat them as though they were line employees. And about five or six years after, or 10 years after that case was written, Justice Scalia was heard to ask, who wrote that ridiculous opinion? To which one of his chastened clerks, I think, answered, why it was you, sir. Um, which he did. It was one of his worst opinions ever. Uh, and I think at, towards the end of his life, 2014, 2015, and 16, he started to change his views on that particular question and would have continued to move. And, you know, if you try to figure out who the recent judges are, um, none of the three of them, I, uh, I think, of the Trump appointees are likely to be inordinately sympathetic to the administration of state as a general matter. I mean, Justice Barrett, I believe, clerked for Scalia. Uh, Certainly, Justice Gorsuch has been completely outspoken on this stuff. And although I think that Kavanaugh has been a little bit more tempered uh, in his own decisions, for example, dealing with delegations down to administrative agencies with single people, he too has managed to show it. So I think, in effect, this is going to be an absolutely major fight. There's going to be a huge amount of opposition to this. And uh, one read Julian Metz forward in the Harvard Law Review from about four years ago, in which she thought that this was the end of civilization to some extent. And I think many people on the American left believe that. Uh, they think that Chevron deference is kind of on a par with your attack on the filibuster. It's something that you can't live. Uh, so the stakes are very, very high. Uh, but I think the difficulty that the defenders of Chevron are going to have is that the fact patterns in these cases is extremely unappealing. Chevron itself was a very tricky question of whether a a point source is a chimney stack on a plant or the whole plant itself. And, you know, you can see people going both ways on that. Uh, But the kinds of cases that have been used under this doctrine of Chevron deference beyond that have been so much broader uh, that I think you're going to see it cut back to some substantial effect. So I'm looking forward to a major sort of change on this stuff. And I think for the most part in the right direction. The the story you told about Scalia asking who wrote the hour, the the terrible hour decision, Um, the version of the story I heard, uh, he was saying that to Justice Thomas, and Justice Thomas was the one who reminded him of of that. Of course, Scalia knew. I'm willing to collect the detail. Remember, look, I mean, Justice Thomas has written some of the worst administrative law opinions. The one on beach telecommunications, he uses the word conceivable. That's a death warrant for anybody who wants to make a challenge. So the changes are going to come up and down across the court. I mean, I, I think what's happened in recent years 
is the triumphal version of the administrative state that was put forward early on is no longer viable in light of all the miscarriages and confusions that have happened. And as it turns out that people think the overall estimate of the administrative state is gone south a little bit, uh, the willingness to increase deference is going to start to go up. But amongst progressives, they don't see that sort of decline. In fact, they think the state's doing exactly what they want. Uh, So as in so many other areas, we're going to see more polarization on this issue. But I think in this particular case, the big battalions are on the six, not with respect to the three. And even Breyer, I mean, you know, I don't regard him as a crazy man on administrative law. He's more deferential than I would be. But I do not think of him as somebody who's completely oblivious uh, to the difficulties that are going on with the administrative state. Uh, Kagan has also expressed some uneasiness with respect to it. Uh, So it's really kind of six two sort of in the middle. And I think the only person who's going to stand up full for it is going to be Sotomayor. And eight to one is a pretty devastating majority. And you may get that on at least some of these cases. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the conservatives approach this because, you know, we mentioned Justice Thomas. I mean, he he has made very clear, at least on non-delegation and deference, where he stands. And, and the same with Justice Gorsuch. They are very much in favor of a robust non-delegation doctrine to strike down statutes and and uh, a, a, an elimination, or at least a, a in, certainly for Thomas, an elimination of deference, and, and probably for Gorsuch as well. Um, too soon to tell with Barrett. Alito has been a little bit more nebulous. Roberts and Kavanaugh, I just see as a different kind. Roberts has been very has been much more focused on on steady administration, on limiting the ability of agencies to flip-flop quickly from one administration to the next, not, not getting rid of that altogether, but certainly limiting it. Once I, for a piece I never got around to writing yet, went back and cataloged all the times Roberts at oral argument would needle the Justice Department lawyers for for not wanting to admit that the real reason the agency had changed the policy was because of a change of administrations. But whether we saw this some during the Trump administration in the DACA case and in the, um, the census case um, where, where Roberts was really constraining the ability of an agency to quickly change policy. Kavanaugh, you see some of that, but he's somewhere in the middle. He doesn't want to, doesn't seem to want to get rid of deference. He wants to mend it, not end it. He wants to constrain it with things like the major questions doctrine, but elsewhere, you know, he had, he had a case when he was a DC circuit judge, an FCC case called American radio relay league, where he actually was worried that administrative law as we now know it is too constraining on agencies. Um, and, and so you get sort of mixed cross currents in his jurisprudence too. This is all going to take a long time to work its way out. I think the center of gravity, and I, I think you probably agree with this based on what you said, the center of gravity is somewhere around Roberts, Kavanaugh, Kagan, Breyer, and, and maybe a few others, but with, with, with real ballast coming from Thomas and Gorsuch's first principles critiques of, uh, of, of non-delegation and, and, and deference. Yeah, look, I mean, one of the interesting cases that you didn't mention is the Gundy case, where I thought it was a relatively easy case to say that the delegation was improper. Uh, the question there was a major question as to whether or not a given statute having to do with the reportage of sex offenders when they moved to different locations, uh, whether it could be applied retroactively to people who were released uh, prior to the time. And all that happened was it was 
delegated to the attorney general. He says, yes, of course, there was no detailed analysis. And it's the kind of up down decision it's, that you can make. And I think it's correct to say that it should be made by the legislature. Justice Kagan said, oh, my God, if we allow this, it's the end of the administrative state. I think, in fact, narrowly, it doesn't do that at all. Up down decisions are relatively easy to require the legislature to decide. You're not trying to figure out how facts and circumstances influence the placement of a power plant or something of the sort. What was interesting about that case is all the amicus briefs came out in favor of limiting delegation. Some people said, oh, ho, ho, we just don't like delegation at all. Other people said, well, this is a criminal case and you have to have much more exacting standards. And so what's going on, and even in the academic community now, is there's at least some division of opinion. On the other hand, with respect to Chevron deference and lots of other things, uh, more generally, uh, the American left and the American right are very, very far apart. Uh, so as you indicated, we've got a very fractionated landscape there. Uh, you basically pointed out as much as uh, three or four different factions on a court of nine. And so the coalescence of these people in particular cases is going to be something you're going to have to watch. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear that uh, for the next several years on the private law side, the action is not going to be with constitutional principles dealing with takings. Those will be in the background. I think it's going to be generally with the scope of the administrative state. On that, I think you're exactly correct. About that last case, um, uh, or actually a pair of cases, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. Uh, they may signal the end of, of affirmative action uh, in the court's jurisprudence. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's very, very difficult. If you start looking at the way the world is run, affirmative action programs have become entrenched. And at some level, um, I'm in favor of it. The test that I've always used intellectually to decide this has nothing to do with the law. It says if you had an uncoerced private governance situation in a university or in a workplace, meaning you didn't get the federal government coming down on you if you came out with the wrong decision, would you or would you not have some degree of affirmative action? And I think the answer is you would have some, but not nearly as much as you're going to observe today. And so if it had turned out that we were still in the Bakke world and the Weber world of, you know, a little bit of a preference here, a little bit of preference there, my guess is that everybody would have left this thing slide and would have taken their cue from what Justice O'Connor wrote, you know, when Grutter, I think it was now close to 20 years ago, saying, in the end, this thing will start to source itself out. But this is not the version of affirmative action that we have today. It's not just a tiny change. It's a huge um, seismic shift in terms of the level of preferences that are being given. Um, and it turns out now, essentially, it's just an enormous question. There are some places who say, we won't even consider you unless you now sign up fealty for certain kinds of positions. They announce really very, very strong protections and, and preferences for women and for various minorities. And that starts to raise hackles of a large number of people who supported the earlier kinds of program. When it comes to Harvard, you know, my view about Harvard is it thinks that it should do whatever it wants because it's one of these regnant institutions in the world, but a strong anti-discrimination you know, norm uh, being applied everywhere else may be fine, but not for us in the way in which we do things. I thought their evidentiary record was simply terrible on this stuff. You can, 
not explain the uh, huge gaps in terms of the admission scores with respect to Asians, Jews, other white individuals, and so forth, on the uh, grounds that they are doing it. So they're caught by hypocrisy. Uh, the First Circuit, when it looked at this case, like the trial judge said, we're in Boston. Affirmative action is an extremely useful thing. We're going to read it in this particular way. I think, in effect, it's going to be into rough sledding. I think it would be a terrible mistake to sort of cut it down so you can't do any version of this at all. Uh, but I think the current situation is completely intolerable. So this is going to be the problem. Is there a way, place that you could find a kind of a middle ground? Generally, you find administrative grounds in the middle being done by sensible administrators. It's very difficult to have a legal rule put together by a court, which is going to be in the middle because they can't enforce it case by case. So there'll be a tendency to go per se one way or per se the other way. You could do it anytime you want or not at all. And it may well be that you'll say you can't do it at all. And I think that's going to create various kinds of shockwaves in the companies, probably too much of a, of a choice. But I have no idea whether the center will hold on this thing. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to watch the way in which these particular arguments go. Um, I think it's going to be very hard to say that it, it, affirmative action, as it's currently practiced, by which I mean diversity and inclusion, is what we really want in this country. I think that there's too much of an ideological overtone. It's not only a question of who you admit, but now how you start to think on these things. So I think, in effect, that when the case is going to be taken, it's more likely than not uh, that the Harvard situation and the North Carolina situation are going to result in a fairly substantial trimming of what affirmative action is about in the United States. And I think it's going to give rise to a huge political brouhaha once that is done. And you? Well, Richard, you mentioned the Grutter and Gratz cases where, where Justice O'Connor famously said that, that 20 years from then, you wouldn't need affirmative action anymore. Well, that was 2003. And if the court hears this case, as I think it's, it's going to in, in fall of 2022, that means the decision will come out in 2023, 20 years after O'Connor's famous statement. I mean, my sense of the, where the court is headed with this is, is the same as yours. Um, and I would just add to it one small detail. Um, this is a case about the, the interpretation of the Civil Rights Act, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, and its prohibition against um, racial discrimination in universities. When Justice Gorsuch wrote his opinion for the court in, in Bostock, the, the case involving the Civil Rights Act and um, uh, gender, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, my just armchair guess was that Gorsuch himself would probably return to that case to, to cite it uh, in, when, whenever the court eventually arrived on affirmative action. The Justice Gorsuch uh, would be able to point out that his, his own strict construction of the Civil Rights Act uh, applies equally, not just in, in that case involving gender identity and sexual orientation, but in other cases, and especially in a case like this you know, involving race-based affirmative action. Um, so I, I, I think that for as much as conservatives uh, were grinding their teeth over Bostock, and, and I'm I have my own qualms with with the, the particulars of of the court's uh, analysis in that case. I will be very interested to see the extent to which that case 
um, becomes fodder for Justice Gorsuch's own opinion if he writes separately in in the the, the Harvard and North Carolina cases, or if he happens to write for the majority, the extent to which he circles back to that. Uh, Bostock has always struck me as, as just wrong on epistemological and linguistic ground. What he did is he managed to find an interpretation that he thought was necessarily contained in the language which nobody on the face of the globe believed at the time that it was drafted. And I, I cannot believe that linguistic theory is designed to say that if you mean one thing, we are necessarily going to treat you as having said another when the you is not just one individual's idiosyncratic interpretation of a phrase, but an entire community. So I thought the Alito dissent in that case was particularly powerful. But if you are going to use the straight textualism approach, it doesn't require you to have the same flights of fancy to strike down affirmative action when you say any individual, as it does to get you where Bostock was. And so I think under his approach, he's absolutely committed to overturning this stuff, saying it's up for Congress to start to change this thing. And so I think of him as a fair firm vote on this. Uh, Bostock was not an important case in the following sense. It was a great matter of statutory interpretation, but the general practices on discrimination on these grounds have been so far, has moved so far that the number of people who generally had to be pushed in this direction are going to be very few. Whereas on affirmative action, what you're doing is you're having a program which is fairly strongly supported by large numbers of people, which are going to strike down. Whereas in Bostock, you had a program which was fairly supported by a large number of people, which was upheld. And I think, in fact, the political difference is there. So if you think about this, think back to Brown v. Board. In the end, all respectable people were against segregation. And so uh, whether you liked or didn't like the legal logic, you could see where it was going. When you got to abortion, it turns out, you know, they give a kind of cavalier view of this stuff. But there are many, many, many people who are deeply opposed to the decision so it never got that kind of legitimacy and i'm not talking here whether it's right or wrong i think the affirmative action statute is painfully clear Uh, but what i'm saying about is the political response here is going to be much more virulent uh, than it was with respect to bostock because on the underlying merits in bostock i think the american attitude with respect to uh, issues of sex and uh, sexual orientation and, and gender transformation and so forth have moved very sharply over 50 years. Uh, but on affirmative action, uh, they've moved in both directions very sharply, and the popular cleavage is going to be much, much greater. Universities have been very, very effective at, at, at employing affirmative action under a cloud of, you know, a multifaceted test of, of a student's overall character and experience and then so on. I, ironically, that would make it easier for the court to make a broad categorical rule uh, about uh, affirmative action and race-based university admissions. The court could make that declaration knowing that things wouldn't change Categorically black and white, uh, I guess that's a bad pun here, but um, categorically um, overnight, um, because they know that actually it's going to be very complicated in how it plays itself out in very, very fact-specific ways. Um, also, just to circle back one last time on Bostock, I mean, I, I'm with you. I think Alito had the, the better of, of, that, of that case with his dissent. Um, I'm not disagreeing with that. And if anything, I think the difference between Alito's approach to textualism in that case and Gorsuch's is a, was a stark reminder that just as there are many flavors of administrative law jurisprudence among the conservatives on the court, there's also interesting flavors of textualism. And going forward in these cases we've discussed today and in many cases to come, some of the most interesting debates uh, in and around the Supreme Court will be among the conservative justices as they're really pressed 
by one another, by Justice Kagan, by litigants, to think even more precisely and even more deeply about what it means to be a textualist judge, um, how you go about interpreting written laws. But we will see. Yeah, I have just one last observation as we come to a close. If you look at all of these cases and you just say, just take a given group, white or black, and not do any course racial situation, there's the following situation. People who have the strongest transcripts have the strongest extracurricular records. Almost never do you see cases in which there's a stark reversal. So if you had, say, two black applicants, one who had board scores 300 points above the other, which is a very large difference, you would almost never take the person with the lowest score on the grounds that the extracurricular activities offset that. Uh, So you're using something between races that you would never use within races. So I think the next round of battle is going to be exactly how you work this bonus system. I think it's been subject to an enormous sets of abuses as these things have started to go on. Uh, One of the things that's so troublesome about the Harvard situation is you get the interviewers sending in very glowing reports about many Asian applications and then the central administration at the Harvard Admissions Committee deciding to flip this thing over uh, so that there are all sorts of hints of procedural irregularities associated with. But you have hit it. Essentially, if you start going to a polycentric system, to what extent can you put back some portion of affirmative action? And if this case goes the way, these cases go the way I expect they will, then that's going to be the next battle. I think you agree with that, don't you? Well, definitely, Richard. I think it's teeing up some really interesting issues for the months and years ahead. A lot for us to to discuss in future episodes, but this is probably the right time to bring this episode to a close. So thanks again for joining us, Richard. And thanks again to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.